welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies, the home of all things horror, haunted, and Halloween-y. I had to remember for a second what the tagline was, <laughs> not in front of me. Uh, I am one of your hosts, Ms. Melma. She sure is, and I am the other host, Mr. Craigers. He sure is. And tonight, for our 111th, it's like, the, that's Bilbo Baggins' day. <laughs> But it, he calls it something funny. Is eleven hundred birthday or something? Today is my one hundred and eleven first birthday. Yeah, eleven <laughs> one. He calls himself eleven one. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Um. Anyway, it's also <laughs> it is our eleven one episode. Um, in honor of the season and specifically the upcoming holiday, we are covering 1997's iconic teen slasher horror extravaganza mm. i know what you did last summer mm-hmm. directed by jim gillespie correct okay it's like did i make that up um <clears throat> and written by kevin williamson uh you should be familiar to all yeah and jim gillespie kind of disappears after this movie which <laughs> i think is a bit of a shame because it's well directed yeah, well, and we'll get into a lot of his, like, he was really into directing this movie. He was yeah. really into this movie. So Very much so. Yeah. Kevin Williamson, as we know, did not disappear after this movie. No, not, no. In fact, after this movie, his career peaked even more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, now he's, and now he's just sort of rocking and rolling. I'm actually trying to think. I don't think anyone from this movie really fell off the face of the earth besides. Yeah. Besides Gillespie. Yeah. Yeah, everyone else sort of did quite well. Yeah. He sold his soul for everyone else's success. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. Anyway, before we get into that, we'll uh, do a bit of horror headlines since last we, we spoke to y'all in... June for what we do in June. They slash them. Baby. They slash them. <laughs> I repressed it. Yeah, I mean, and that is a natural response. It is yeah. a understandable anyway, reaction. <laughs> what have you been up to? Um, I've got one big one that I would I think I'm gonna touch on, and that is that I saw the blackening. Oh yes, this I saw. Yeah. I think I saw that on your letterbox. Yeah, yeah, and um, it uh, it was a good time. It was um, it was pretty clever. It was um, pretty fun. It's not like the deepest sort of thing you're gonna watch this year. It you know it's sort of on the nose, and it's not quite as funny as it thinks it is. But the cast is really committed, and you could tell they were having fun. So it was a an enjoyable experience, and I feel like I'll definitely make it. Uh, holiday horror staple because it takes place on Juneteenth. Oh yes, I did. I did read that it was like a Juneteenth getaway is kind of the like setup. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Excellent. I finally watched Evil Dead Rise. Oh. On. Right, and we haven't really talked about, about, about it, so this is the first time. Yeah. Of your. I was saving it to talk to you about it now because. Yeah. My thoughts were I liked the 2013 remake better. Yeah. Um, just because that felt like more like an Evil Dead movie. 
than this did. And I think that's partially because of like the setting, you know, like it's very, it's clearly a quarantine movie, like mm-hmm. with, with the setting. But I also thought it was interesting the way that they, they worked with the setting. And, you know, I thought it definitely was very violent and like graphic, but like, it was done. Like I always find, like I've found that the remake, like the 2013 and this one, like it's just like the like excessive violence doesn't bother me because it's like so interesting to look at, like the way it's like the makeup's done and like the production value of it is like, it's like, Oh, this is like, like interesting to look at, like the, the design of the deadites and, and that sort of thing. But, um, no, I'd watch more of them, but, uh, yeah. yeah. That's fair. I I really liked the change of setting, mm-hmm. um, but I definitely see where like that you know it couldn't maybe feel like an Evil Dead movie because of the change of setting. Yeah, and I think it's just like down to like a your personal vibes thing. Because for me, like the cabin in the woods and like finding the book just feels so like I you know. Yeah. Um, which obviously throughout the Evil Dead franchise, they like, you know, it goes bonkers in terms of like settings and stuff, but like keeping in with like the sort of like original feel, it's, um, I just like the cabin in the woods vibe better, but, uh, no, I, I enjoyed it. It was good. It was, it was, um, I, you know, without giving it like too much away I felt like they did a good job of delivering like on the stakes with like how things play out and that sort of thing um don't know how I felt about the like marauder entity (laughs) yeah that that felt kind of strange just because of the you know the franchise we're in and that sort of thing but um whatever um, but yeah, I watched that. I also watched um, a film called Malum. Oh, the yeah. like... It's the remake of Last, Last Shift. Shift. Yeah. I heard that was pretty good. But... I liked it. I have okay. not seen Last Shift. Oh, um, okay. People who did see Last Shift, at least like on like Letterboxd and stuff, were saying like, oh, Last Shift was so much better just because... This seems to be like just a bigger budget, almost shot for shot remake based on what they were saying. But having not seen the original, like, you know, to me, I'm like, oh, this is really good. Um, But I enjoyed that. Um, It was a good use of like a single setting, too, of like sort of you go into you you go into the space and then you're there for the next two hours. And that's what I really liked about I I have seen Last Shift. I haven't Mm -hmm. seen Malum. Um, and that's what I always remember when I think about that movie, like the single setting. I love, I love a single setting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that was very good. Um, and then the only other thing I have is that I read Blood Music by Greg Bear, which is sci-fi, but also like body horror, um, which you know is like not usually my jam, but I, I Mm -hmm. tend to not have a problem reading about it. Um, it's a very interesting book from like I want to say it's from the 80s based on the fact that I think like they mentioned West Germany at one point um, <laughs> but um, it's about basically they create like a virus that is intelligent um, like 
has like you know in, in, like intelligence and the ability to like create basically society inside your body is what they come to find um mm. and it sort of turns into like a crazy strange pandemic and it also like changes your body because it's like oh you're this is wrong we don't like this we're going to just change that or like you know and it'll be things where it's like oh like i suddenly don't need contacts like that's weird to like entire like but like changing your bone structure and Ooh. and that sort of thing um it was good it was a quick read um and it was interesting yeah i feel like i like i saw that you like were reading it on goodreads and then it felt like the next day you were done with it yeah it's very oh, yeah, it's very was... short yeah. <laughs> it's like i want to say it's like maybe 200 pages maybe oh. a little over that it's a very yeah, quick that is, that is snappy um but yeah that's that's what i've been up to Trying to, I'm at the point now where I'm seeing some things. And I'm like, I should save this for October. I know there's some there's some stuff where I'm like, do I watch it now or do I hold off a little bit and wait till the fall or I don't know. We've we've talked before on the show about like usually in late summer we start mm-hmm. to get real itchy for yeah yeah. I think I've started like in August. Like the earliest I started, I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna start doing this. Um, but yeah, nice, very good, good stuff. But fall is not here yet, and no. summer is upon us. It is. In fact, we are smack dab in the middle of it. And uh, for those chatterers in the U.S. of A., it's uh, time for our national birthday. Mm-hmm. Good old Independence Day, the 4th of July. And uh, like Miss Mill said at the top of the show, in honor of that, we're going to take a look at I Know What You Did Last Summer for the main portion of the episode. Um, due to some recent background technically stuff, we can't play the trailer for the film. Uh, so we are just going to dive right in. If mm-hmm. you're interested in the trailer, you know, this is a podcast. Pause us and go watch it. Yeah. <laughs> go watch the peak era of trailers that was the 90s. Oh, my gosh. The narration. Mm-hmm. In a world. <laughs> in a world. We're four teams. <laughs> I'm ready. I haven't even looked at the trailer either. Yeah, I have no idea. I do know that the the trailer, the teaser trailer for the second one uses an unused scene from this one. Amazing. Which I will explain later. Later. So. Well, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, let's dive right in, right? Yeah. Um, to our opening question, which many chatterers know, we keep it the same to start off our discussion. And uh, what is that opening question, Ms. Mel? It is, when and where did you first encounter this film? What were your impressions? It sure is. Thoughts, feelings. And I have an answer that often comes up when we ask this question to each other. And that answer is, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, that was, I was trying to think about that with this one too. And that was like sometime in high school, I think. Yeah, I I think high school, maybe, maybe middle school. Um, I... You know, in some some films, when we get to this question, like we might have like hazy memories 
mm-hmm. of like watching it piecemeal or like um, an AMC Fear Fest, you know, lazy afternoon one October. But this, I really can't place at all. No. Um, at some point, it was just something that I had seen. Yeah. <laughs> I do recall, like, I think this was another one of those VHSs that my sister had because she had Sounds of the Lambs. Um, I want to say she had Scream. And I think she had this because I remember seeing this sort of like poster of it, like that, or the cover of the VHS. And I love this poster. Like remembering like the name very vividly and thinking like it was like a joke movie or something. Like I know it last summer, you know, like when I was a kid being like, what does this mean? You know? Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, like I, I don't know. It must have been sometime in my teenage years that I, that I watched it for real. For realsies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I remember, I mean, like, I've always liked this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just don't know when I actually saw the whole thing start to finish. Yeah. (laughs) And here we are. But here we are. So yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the movie and, um, what it is technically based on but yeah very loosely do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah so it's loosely based on the 1973 young adult novel of the same name which was written by Lois duncan um which basically like is the same similar premise for teenagers commit a hit and run in this case it was like a young boy on a bicycle um, and then, like, a year later, somebody's like, I know what you did last summer. And it's like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> it is more of, like, a like a mystery novel, though. Like, there's not, like, any, like, besides, like, the kid getting, like, murked on the bicycle, like, yeah. there's not, like, any, like, overt violence in it. It's kind of just, like, a mystery of, like, who's blackmailing them and that sort of thing. Um, like a pretty little liar's, uh. Yeah, the story of, like, Duncan coming up with this, like, is wild to me, because I don't know how her brain made this leap, but basically she was overhearing her teenage daughter and her teenage daughter's friend both discussing a date they respectively had scheduled that turned out to be, like, through the course of their conversation with the same boy. And Duncan, like, thought, like, did the boy present different personas to different girls? And she was, like, thinking about that and, like, combined it in her brain with the story of a local hit and run that had happened. Huh. Um, still not entirely sure how she gets the novel out of this, but I guess okay. she got something out of it. Um, could, it I think not, it was, could it not just be that the boy just made two separate dates? I think, like, the way that they were talking, it seemed like it was two different boys, and then they realized it was the same boy. Like, just the way that they were saying, like, what they were going to wear... And where they were going, the dates just seemed very different. Got it. But who knows? Who knows? But anyway, an updated version of the novel was released um, in 2010, which like modernized some of the pop culture references. Like they changed like the Vietnam War to the Iraq War and gave the kids cell phones. That's kind of stupid. Yeah, I think it was, like, the publisher's kind of push, like, at the time. Because, like, that's when YA, like, really took off. So I think they were just, like, let's, you know. Have you read this book? 
I have not. Yeah, me neither. Um, Duncan uh, did not approve of this film version of her novel. She didn't approve of, like, the slasher angle that it takes. Um, And a big part of this is because her youngest daughter was actually murdered in 1989. um, And that murder remained a cold case until actually quite recently. In August 2021, um, a man who was arrested for unrelated charges confessed to multiple murders that had happened around the same time, including Duncan's daughter. Oh, I didn't know that. I knew that her daughter had been... Yeah, I didn't know that it was... Like, like they closed the case. Yeah, yeah, very recently. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um... But the other thing that the film is based on is an urban legend we all know called The Hook. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, and this gets sort of uh, touched upon. They, they play with this in the movie itself. But basically everyone has heard some version of um, this Hook urban legend. Um, usually, like, the main bullet points are there is um, a either a couple or a group of young people in a car in an isolated location who is aware, um, either through the radio or a recent news broadcast or something, that a dangerous individual is on the loose. Either some sort of convicted killer who has escaped from prison or a patient at the mental institution who has also escaped, and they have a hook for a hand. And... It is. We will get into where that comes from because it's dark where it comes from, but in a vacuum, it sounds hilarious. It does kind of sound hilarious, right? Mm-hmm. And and like they talk, like the characters talk about it in the movie. Some, you know, obviously there's some sort of creepy encounter. There's like a scraping either on the roof or they see something or the side of the car. Sometimes someone gets out to investigate. Sometimes they drive away. And sometimes the hook is left hanging on the side of the car as if it was about to like break into the car sometimes they get out and find the the killer hanging from a tree branch above the car there's various different versions right Mm -hmm. i'm not even i know that i like knew of this urban legend and heard it and retold it i don't even remember yeah i'm like version i was trying to think because i think there's a version in um scary stories to tell in the dark yeah, I think there is. And, like, whatever that is, that's probably the one that I, like, heard and repeated and right. that sort of thing. Um, but. Yeah. It's one of the, like, peak urban legends. It's not tied to any specific geography. It's, like, it's a classic, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, but it is based in some kernels and some elements of truth. Um the urban legend itself started sort of circulating um, from what we can tell in the 1950s and then really in the 1960s. And the best guess is that it is a slightly tweaked version of um, the 1946 Lover's Lane murders in Texarkana, uh, which a lot of people also know as the Moonlight Murders. I can never remember if Texarkana is in Texas or Kansas because it is Tex. It's on the border. Yeah. I think it's Texas. I can't Uh, remember. It's Arkansas. I don't know. 
And I feel like I've also seen stuff where it's like, well, this half of the town is here and this. And yeah, like, kind of like what? Kansas that City. Be a thing? Where is it? Yeah. It's um, like the Kansas City deal. Yeah. But I never remember. Um, yeah, so that was uh, there was a real string of, of killings um, that some of them were committed on lover's lanes, but not all of them. Um, the perpetrator was dubbed the Phantom Killer. And they occurred between February and May of 1946. Four pairs of teenagers were the primary targets. Five of those eight victims uh, died from the attacks uh, by the assailant, who was said to be quite tall and large, at least six feet tall, and who wore a white pillowcase over his head when he attacked, which is some pretty It should sound thing. familiar to people, though, that imagery. Uh, absolutely, it should. Yeah. Um, it has been something that has been uh, aped and homaged in quite a bit of the genre over the years. Um, so that's sort of where we get the in the urban legend, this idea of the lover's lane, this idea of being isolated in an intimate moment where you might be being stalked or watched and ultimately attacked by someone very dangerous. The next um, part I will say is slightly dark, so... The next part is slightly trigger warning. The hook element that um, found its way into the urban legend is believed to originate from the reports that the attacker, the phantom killer in Texarkana, sexually assaulted the first female victim with the barrel of uh, the gun that he brought to the assault. Yeah. Um, pretty heavy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, a lot of uh, horror folks are probably, or true crime people are uh, familiar with the case of the Phantom Killer and the Moonlight Murders and generally know this next piece of information. But if you don't, uh, the the murders were uh, genuinely sort of um, portrayed more or less um, in the 1976 uh, slasher film, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which is an excellent movie. Mm-hmm. And we have touched on here and there in past episodes, even though we haven't covered it extensively. Yeah. There was also a really good coverage of this legend, specifically in the 2014 documentary, Killer Legends. Oh, yeah. yeah by Joshua cool. Zeman, which was for the RIP Ch- Chiller channel. Oh, um, it was produced by them. Um, I think it's on like Netflix and other places now. But um, he, they go after four different urban legends. This one, the Candyman, the Babysitter, and the Man Upstairs, and the Killer Clown. Um, and it's very interesting. That is a great documentary. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's a little bit about sort of um, where a lot of the ideas within this story come from um, and a little bit of the, the DNA that's imbued in both the novel, but more to an extent to the film. Yes. Um, and so speaking of the film, how did this all come about? How did we get to where we were in 1997? 1997. Well, the first interesting tidbit um, is that this is actually... Kevin Williamson, who obviously, you know, you should know from Scream, The Faculty, Dawson's Creek, um, wrote this before he wrote Scream. Um, 
this predated Scream, he couldn't get like a buyer for it and kind of just shelved it. After Scream had, you know, insane success, um, this movie was like fast track. They like, you know, they rushed it to production to try and get it out for the following uh, October. Mm -hmm. Um, Williamson did rework some elements of it to make it more slashery because I don't think his original adaptation was... um, it was, I think, truer to the to the source material. Um, and he changed the setting, inspired by his father, who had been a commercial fisherman, to a seaside village and um, wanted to make the killer a fisherman who, like, resembled his father's fishing elf, like, his father and his, like, rain slicker and uh, his, like, hook that he used for, you know, stringing up fishes. Fishes? Fish. I think both are accurate i think so um but that's like from the writing standpoint um jim gillespie uh director who is like i feel like most well known for this film yeah like i'm not sure there's anything else he has that's really um more well known but he gets involved and we get rocking and rolling with our with our pre-production moves, such as uh, finding our leads. Yeah. Um, and so obviously the film focuses on four central characters and um, it was the wish of the studio that those four central characters be played by actors who were beautiful, but likable. <laughs> I find kind of funny the idea that beautiful people would be pretty people don't have fr- yeah like as if pretty people don't have <laughs> yeah. emotions. Um. <laughs> so um, interestingly enough, um, it's you know a lot of not a lot of times, but a, a good portion of the times the the lead can sometimes be cast last in movies like these. Um, but, uh, in fact, Jennifer Love Hewitt, who plays, uh, Julie was actually cast first and she was cast, uh, primarily on her ability to project vulnerability, uh, which is important for the Julie character. And I think comes across, uh, other, um, you know, nineties staples, you know, I think were sort of like in contention, including, uh, Melissa Joan Hart, uh, she was offered the role of Helen, but turned it down, believing that um, the movie was actually a ripoff of Scream. Which, like, is funny to me, because, like, did she know that it was the same writer? Like, I don't... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if maybe that wasn't conveyed to her by her agent or <laughs> what the deal was there. But it is kind of funny, because, as we'll get to a little bit later, that's um, what this movie got knocked for. At mm-hmm. the time and has been knocked for since and it's, it's like well can it really be a knockoff if it was written first yeah um but anyway uh so sarah michelle geller was ultimately offered the role of helen because uh producers felt that she could project the warmth of the character while also being a bitch now i take a little bit of issue with that because i don't actually think helen is a bitch no I don't think we see anything bitchy from her. No, she's like not like like I think of like SMJ's character and like Cruel Intentions and how much of like of an absolute fucking villain 
she is in that movie. Like, yeah. this one felt very, like... Like, she was playing, like, Buffy pre... Like, season one Buffy. Like, Buffy before she shows up in... You know, I don't... You don't... You never really watched Buffy. I know you watched, like, a yeah, couple episodes in, like, a film class. But basically, like, you know, Buffy of, like, the movie that predates oh. the the oh, the TV yeah. show. Like, that's the kind of vibe it was, where it's like, oh, yeah, like, she's got attitude. She's kind of a rich girl. Um, but she's also, like, not a bad person. Right. Like, the movie doesn't demonstrate that idea of Helen she's not cruel to anyone she's not like I mean even with her sister who I would argue is her the sister actress, is a bitch yeah <laughs> like Elsa. you know like and so I, I, yeah I, I take issue with um that sort of idea of the Helen character but anyway um yeah so so Geller was out she was cast last between the four of them um, Gillespie was a, was a big fan of her. He was fighting to cast her. Um, he had to convince the producers that she could, you know, kind of do the, the warmth side of things. Um, there was some, I guess, some feeling that maybe she was a bit too Valley Girl for a movie set on the East Coast. Um, but it's, 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 I think she's, I think like having watched, like, you know, watching it, rewatching it for this, like, and like, I don't remember, like, the last time I watched this movie. Yeah. But, like, the Helen character, like, almost comes across as, like, the most interesting character. I agree. I think she is the most interesting. And I think a big part of that is because of, like, how Sarah Michelle Gellar plays her and how much time is devoted to, like, her particular point of view in dealing with the situation. Yes. Because... You're right, like, Geller doesn't play her, doesn't play that bitchy side of thing that I guess was maybe intended to be in the character or, like, or whatever it is. And she doesn't play Helen as being ditzy either, which I think would be another obvious choice. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it, her portrayal was really interesting um, because she would just be, Helen would be such an easy stereotype. Right. She's not that at all. Well, and it's just, you know, and it's like, you know, hats off to SMJ and also like she's a scream queen for a reason. But like even thinking to like scream to like how that same character like could very easily be played as just like a ditzy, like, you know, who you know, like valley girl, sorority girl. And like even that with like the very few scenes in line she had, she played it with like enough depth that like you wanted to see more. And it was kind of a bummer when she died. Yeah. So I feel like it's a similar thing here where it's like, oh, like you're, I can't put my finger on it, but you're doing something very interesting with this yes. character. Very much so. Um, and it's, yeah, like, yeah, I think you you touched it. It kind of makes Helen the most interesting character in the film because it's, Bella's portrayal is so against type. Yeah. So, um and in terms of the uh, the male half of our foursome, uh, Ryan Philippi, uh, he was offered the role of Barry, even though um, how Barry is written is not at all a matchup to um, Ryan Philippi's sort of physical presentation at the time. Uh, the screenplay describes Barry as being tall, physically large, and like a jock, right? Like we know... Mm-hmm. 
that the Barry character is on an athletic scholarship. I think football, even. Yeah. Um, and he's, like, wearing his Letterman jacket in the beginning, I think, too. Yeah. And Ryan Philippi, while, like, sort of, like, traditionally good-looking and, like, a, a classic 90s heartthrob, would not be someone I would call a jock. No. And he's not, like, and he's not large. No. Like, the scene where he's, like, in his white tank top, he's got, like, noodle arms. Yeah. Yeah. Um... But so it, but it's sort of, sort of like kudos and props to him for um, showing something to get cast in a role that, you know, right. maybe wasn't originally intended for someone like him. Yeah, I feel like with his lack of like physical size to back up the way he behaves, he again like comes off as like more interesting than he would be on paper because it's like. Mm it becomes sort of like a psychological thing where it's like, okay, he's like projecting like this like largeness and he's got these anger issues and, you know, pairing that with somebody who's in a physically smaller body that feels physically less threatening. I, I think is very interesting and more interesting than if you had like a big hulking dude, like. That is interesting. Yeah. And I think it gets into that thing again, because of Philippi's, actual physicality Barry becomes a lot more interesting as a character than he would be if yeah. he almost if feels more dangerous at times yeah it's like it's, how unhinged he behaves well and especially when that in um sort of part of our opening sequence when he's freaking out and like demanding that everyone agree to to the promise and he gets like physically violent with Julie Mm -hmm. um and verbally violent with her like that's a that's a that's a scary scene because of how he's behaving yeah um even though he's again even though he's not like the biggest guy yeah so um so yeah and he was actually um uh i guess like turned on to the film i believe because reese witherspoon who he was dating at the time had read um for one of the female leads and then um, backed out of the auditions. And she sort of like, I guess, like tipped him off and tipped off um, the studio that he might be good for it. I don't know. Do you know what who she was reading for, Reese Witherspoon? I'm assuming I Helen. Yeah, I, I think the consensus was that it was Helen, but it wasn't like ever. Um, they never said. Yeah. And then the last of our of the of the four principal characters, um, Ray was uh, played by Freddie Prince Jr. He was cast because it it was felt that he had the everyman quality that that character needed. There was some hesitation on the production side because um, Prince wasn't really a known quantity at that point. And like Philippi, he also like couldn't boast a huge physical presence. Um, he did bulk up as best as he could, and um, after auditioning five times, he was offered and accepted the role. I feel like Scooby-Doo has, like, ruined my perception of him, where every time I see him with his natural hair, I'm like, you you look wrong. I know, right? Which is funny, because, like... And it's like, I guess that was like the first time I was introduced to him was in Scooby-Doo. So I was like, oh yeah, I like this guy. And then I see him with his like actual <laughs> hair. And I'm yeah. like, what is, why are you dyeing your hair this way? 
right? It's like when you're a kid and it takes you a while to understand that like actors dye their hair or wear wigs or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then, um, and then how about the rest of the cast? There's some other in here that people are familiar with. Yeah, real quick, uh, Anne Hetch, who, Hesh, Hetch? I think Hesh. Hesh. Yeah. Who plays the um, sort of loner sister of the guy that we believe is the um, hit and run victim for most of the film. Um, Only appears in two scenes. Um, but they cast her because they wanted somebody with like like big screen presence because those scenes are very pivotal to like how the plot moves forward and the characters' choices. So they wanted somebody who like really sticks in your mind. Well, I was gonna say because it feels like she's in the movie for a lot more of it. Yeah, it's only two scenes. It's the first time they go. I mean, you could say that it's more than one quote unquote scene, but you know, and say I guess it's like two sequences. Yeah. Um, but it's when they go to visit her the first time and she, you know, they like say like, oh, we're having car trouble, you know, and try and talk to her. And then it's when um, Julie goes back and like realizes that her like she talks about her brother having committed suicide and yeah, she realizes that it's not him. That was the person that they they hit. Um, and then that's it. She doesn't appear again after that. Um but, yeah, I mean, she really had the creepy, creepy, like, almost Texas Chainsaw vibes down for yes. that character. Yes, very, awesome. very much so. Interestingly, their work in this film, Philippi and Geller, um, like, led directly to them being cast in Cruel Intentions um, because the producer of this film recommended them uh, for that one. And they'd go with, to star in that, I think, two years later. Um, and I think that's one they're probably more well known for. Both are cult films, but I think Cruel Intentions kind of has a bit of a wider audience and staying power. Um, and also famously stars like Selma Blair. And yeah. Isn't Reese Witherspoon in that? Is she... Am I making that up? Is she? She's the the target. In that movie, right? Yeah, she is. She yeah. is. The, yeah. So. The one, the one, yeah, the one that they're going. Cruel Intentions is a wild movie, y'all. It is a wild <laughs> movie. Um, <laughs> um, Tara Reed's in that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we should have a cruel, a tangential Cruel Intentions episode. We should. Yeah. It's, also it's like, like a, it's like psychological horror. It's psychological horror. I think we can make the case. Yeah. It also is like kind of was like like Sarah Michelle Geller like didn't do a whole lot of like lead movies after that. No, she was like in a lot of character work after that because I think yeah. I mean she was in the midst of Buffy and then she went on to do Scooby Doo. And then at some point she was in the Ring? The Grudge. The Grudge. The Grudge. I get them so confused in my brain. Mm-hmm. Like, um, she was in The Grudge, um, and she was in a few other things randomly. She was recently in Wolfpack, which was not a good show, but she was That's good right. in it. <laughs> she was, like, the anchor for that 
that um, show. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, could I think she honestly is living off that Buffy money? Probably. Yeah. yeah. That's going to be good residuals. Yeah. Yeah, that's not something that you can afford to just, like, take off a streamer for tax purposes, so. Yeah. Um, anyway, in <laughs> March 1997, uh, principal photography began. Um, weirdly enough, this movie mostly filmed on location in North Carolina, where it takes place in um, a city called Southport. Um, but they filmed the opening sequence and specifically the driving sequence in Sonoma County, California, because North Carolina was too flat and lacked like winding turns that they needed. And you can see and feel that. It feels yeah, I'm like this is not North Carolina. <laughs> like uh, no, 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 no. That is yeah. very California. Yeah. And um, that where they actually filmed that um, Colmer Gulch or it's Highway One near Colmer Gulch is an actual like blind turn if you look it up like it's a nuts oh. sort of like hairpin turn, um, and this is in Bodega Bay, um, so this is kind of around like um, San Francisco and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, the birds. Yeah, but as for the North Carolina locations. Um, they filmed in the Amuzu Theater, which is where the, like, pageant stuff takes place. Historical theater, still in use today. Um, the Old Yacht Basin. The Southport, the Southport Fish Company, um, among a few others. Uh, there was one, the Shriver... Sh- Shri- I always want to say Shrivers because Shivers is so stupid. <laughs> uh, the Shiver Department Store... Um, was filmed in this place called the Herald's Department Store, um, which originally was only supposed to be, like, in the one scene where we first see that um, Helen is working there instead of being in New York. But Gillespie was, like, so into this department store that they had found that he, like, reworked some of the script to include it in more scenes and then set up that that chase scene. Um, towards which I think the, one of the best chase sequences. In yeah. Yeah. Um, and he did that because he was so taken with the location. Um, Harold's uh, had first opened in 1903, but unfortunately closed permanently due to the COVID-19. Oh, no. Yeah, so it is now closed. Um, Duke University stood in for Boston College, where Julie's dorm scenes um, oh. are. And then a local hospital called Dosher Memorial Hospital um, allowed them to use a, like unused wing for the hospital scenes. Um, the final sequence was shot on an actual boat, like an actual water-bound boat in Cape Fear River, which oh. proved extremely difficult. Yeah, I've heard that like, the seas were really rough when they filmed. Yeah, it was like very rough current, um, and they almost lost the boat like in trying to dock it and they ended up I think having to like abandon it for a day and like come back and hope that it was like still there um (laughs) but interesting that they mostly shot on location um considering that um you know they did take the time to go to California but um the scene where Max played by Johnny Galecki who I always forget is in this movie Mm-hmm. Until he pops up playing very against his eventual type 
Um, because he's yeah. still playing that kind of like doofy sidekick character, but he plays like a sort of like much meaner, self-confident version of that character, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, now I don't think anyone would believe him in that kind of role. I don't think so. I think Big Bang Theory has took him on a entirely different path. <laughs> yeah. Um, but his character wasn't originally supposed to be killed. Um, I think he just sort of was meant to fade out of the movie. Um, but during test screenings, they determined like, oh, like we needed an early death to kind of like, yeah, mix things up and heighten things. So they filmed um, him getting killed in the, the crab factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the epilogue scene. So as we know, like Julie's like, on the phone with um, Ray, she gets in the shower, she gets out, and she sees there's a message like, like says, I, I still know. Mm-hmm. Um, originally, she was supposed to be like talking to Ray like over I am or whatever, and gets like an email or a chat that says, um, I still know. And Gillespie hated it so much that he like purposely filmed it in the like most boring way possible so that like it would get rejected yeah. and he could like do a different one. But that scene that they filmed was used as the teaser trailer for um, I Still Know What You Did. Well, yeah, because that in the sequel, they reveal that she's been having nightmares. Yeah. In that. Um, Yeah. So but all in all, filming lasted 10 weeks. Very quick turnaround. Um, Mm -hmm. And as we know, the film was released the following October. Yeah, which is funny to me. I mean. I understand it in the sense that you're dropping a horror movie in October. Um, you know, that that makes sense. But it like, does take place in the summer. <laughs> it's in the summer and not in like and like a specific time in the summer. It is fourth of July. It's his day. Why? Yeah, it's his day. It's it's um Which is a, also in and of itself a funny line to me because I'm like, oh, you're just you're developing mythos for this person. Oh, oh it's Uncle Sam. <laughs> <laughs> And so that was always funny to me. Um, I I would never watch this movie in the fall. Um, summer yeah. through. But yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah. So just, a, you know, a couple more production details here and there. Uh, John Debney composed this, the score for the film. But there's also an extensive soundtrack that goes with the movie. Um, lots of sort of like big 90s names are on there. You've got Coolest Shaker, Typo Negative does that cover of Summer Breeze in the opening sequence. Um, uh, Soul Asylum, Corn, Toad the Red Sprocket, et cetera, et cetera. They're all um, have songs that are featured in the film. Very of the time. Very of the time soundtrack. Um, I mean, like it fits. There's nothing that's like, a sore thumb or anything but yeah very at the time uh for a slasher surprisingly little amount of blood Mm -hmm. um we really don't see a whole lot of that and that was intentional uh gillespie did not want gratuitous violence and so it's kind of an uh i would say like a good and interesting choice because when we do get like blood splatter um it stands out a whole lot more one of the big moments for that is elsa's kill scene um they they had to reshoot uh because one of the producers um eric feige pointed out um that that 
the manner in which Elsa is attacked, there would have to be blood spray of some kind. Yeah. Use the term medically impossible. Medically impossible. But there was not. Um, with, you know, Helen's bitch sister. Yeah. And then I feel like, like, there's a little bit of blood we see on, like, the Newell post whenever, um... Yeah. After Barry has been killed. Like, the characters don't see it, but we, the audience, Yeah. There's also a little bit in, um, when Max is sort of hooked in the face. Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, but again, not that much. Yeah. I think that's it. Um... And the, another special effect that gets pointed out a lot is um, how they did all of the ice on the boat during the final sequence. Um, it wasn't real. It was made out of gelatin. Um, that, I think, was a practical approach because it was easier to film that way. Yeah. yeah. Rather than having all that ice, real ice on hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about um, the the cast um, and and how they were cast or why they were cast, um, but we'll do a, but we'll do our roll call and if there's anything more we want to say about um, some of the performances or the characters themselves, uh, this is where we will do that. So we'll start with uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, who has top billing as Julie James. Yeah, I mean, very early on, easy to peg that she's sort of like our, like, we don't really have a traditional final girl here just because of the way it ends, but like very much like our sort of like POV character. Um, And then she's good. I mean, like, that's like one of the interesting things about this movie is like everyone in it feels very, um, like, interesting and well-developed in a way that you don't often get in slashers like it feels like there are like internal worlds and stuff that were considered um yeah. and she definitely you know is one of them well i think because like this is a very character driven slasher yeah like we spend a lot of time with these four and getting to know them um before even one of them is killed we spend we actually spend a lot of time getting to know them before like the inciting incident happens right like we get a lot of time at the fourth of july festivities before they um have the hit and run and i think that's what makes this movie so effective right yeah yeah um and that they're also different from each other too like part of me is like how are you guys friends yeah (laughs) those things where it's like how did you all come together it doesn't make a ton of sense and I think the movie touches on that a little bit with this idea of Ray being an outsider. Yeah. He, he's, he's not, not rich. rich. Yeah. Yeah. And the other three are. Um, but, you know, whatever. Julie sees something in Ray and they have sex on the beach. Ooh, why? I think about that, like, people who do that and, like, that showing up in movies. I'm just like, the sand in the places. <laughs> the sand in the places. It would be so uncomfortable. I like that beach set piece. I think like the overturned boat is cool, but yeah. I'm all, every time I'm always like, "Ew, you're gross." Yeah. Uh, anyway. So yeah, I think my my favorite moments from Jennifer Love Hewitt's performance is, uh, like the big, um, like meme, 
Jeff moment when she's like, what are you waiting for? I do have a fun fact about that scene. Oh, really? To share later. Nice. Um, so hold on to that thought. Yeah, I'm going to hold on to that thought. Uh, so next we've got uh, Sarah Michelle Geller as Helen Shivers. I think we covered that she basically, she she's almost like the breakout person. Yeah. In this movie. She um. is almost kind of like the breakout. Um, yeah, and we've talked a little bit about Helen and Geller playing her against type. Um, I find Helen to be a really tragic character. Yeah, I've, I was thinking that during the entire, like, um, chase sequence in the department store where it's like, yeah, like, I know how this ends. I've seen this before, but I'm like, maybe this time. Yeah. Like, I don't really give a shit about Barry. Like, you know, I could take or leave Barry. Um, yeah. Obviously, I know Julie James. Julie James. Why did I feel the need to say the whole... Julie James. That's like when I said Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Julie James. Um, uh, we know Julie survives, so, like, that is its own thing, but, like, Helen in the department store, it's like, like I, I want her to like you can do it. <laughs> like you're so you close. So like, like when she's banging on the door for Elsa, yeah. you know, like the Halloween homage that that yeah. is. Um, it, like that that's really effective. And even just like, you know, like obviously like Helen's ultimate fate, but just sort of like, you know, when we after we have the opening, we jump forward a year and we see that like these four have drifted apart from each other. I find Helen's sort of like fate essentially to be the most heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Like her dream of in New York doesn't pan out. You know, she's clearly like her boyfriend breaks up with her. She and Julie have fallen out of touch with each other. Like they have that moment where she's like, she says to Julie, like, what happened to us? Yeah. And Julie like brushes her off. Like that's really sad. And yeah she's trying to extend an olive branch to this friend that she misses. Like she's struggling for connection. She's lost everything she had the year before. And like, then this horrible thing happens to her. Like I, I feel for Helen. Yeah, no, she definitely like, it's interesting, like hearing like, you know, Jennifer Love Hewitt was cast because she could project vulnerability when like you have Geller's performance, like basically almost usurping in terms of like the sympathy like, the audience, like, owes a character, like, it's just, it's very interesting, like, how impactful that performance was for a character that clearly was written to be more of your, like, stereotypical slasher, like, cannon fodder character, I feel like. Right. Yeah, she's Um, the pageant queen. She's Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, hats off. I honestly, I don't think Sarah Michelle Gellar has done anything I don't like. Granted, I have not seen her soap opera days when she was, like, a teenager. So I don't know about that. But um, I think she's solid in everything she does. And it's impressive that she's able to be that solid when she is so recognizable for one specific performance that she's still able to do things and, like, bring, you know, something, like, impactful to it that's, like, separate from, um, you know, that character. Yeah, and and like and like we were talking about, and just having the writing working against her in a sense. No, yeah. no, I think she's definitely. You know, I don't want to say she's underrated because everyone knows who Sarah Michelle Gellar is. Um, but I do think, in terms of like craft, and like yeah. 
subtle acting, she is very underrated. Um, yeah. And very good. So. Yeah. And I'm glad we really get to see that showcased here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so, so then we've got Ryan Philippi as Barry Cox. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've talked a little bit about the Barry character. Um, we've talked, and we've talked about sort of Philippi and his casting in that. I don't have a ton more to add beyond that. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, the character is so easy to see as one dimensional and you almost kind of do, but I think the dimension that Ryan Philippi plays is kind of unexpected. Like he yeah. just comes across as a very unpredictable, angry person. But because, again, the way he plays it against, like the fact that he he acts in the way he does because he doesn't have like the physical size to back up um, or to like lean on um, yeah. makes it feel more dangerous. Um, yeah. So. Yeah, there is that. And, and then there's something like, and Barry is sort of like, he's that character where like he's not necessarily appreciating the danger that they're in Mm -hmm. you know like when he chases after the fisherman or like um after the gym sequence Mm -hmm. like with the car you know and i think he plays all of that well because like as much as we may not necessarily sympathize a ton with barry we're like he still is able to give us this sense of like dude don't do that like you're in trouble here yeah so that's good um and then freddie prince jr as ray bronson who disappears for the middle act of this movie and then shows back up to be a suspect (laughs) shows back up to be a suspect and i don't like that about the writing and the character he disappears not because he needs to but because the story demands it and i don't think it works but that's nothing against him yeah i think the like he's the weakest character um i think freddie prince jr does a really good job like i think freddie prince like his specifically like his acting in that opening sequence when they're arguing about what to do is really good yeah you know my you know my favorite line delivery that he does mm. is when what's the Johnny Galecki character? Max. Max. Max is um. You know what you can do for me? You can wipe that my shit don't stink grin off your face. Yeah. Freddie Prince Jr. is like, okay, we'll do, Max. Yeah, like kind of spacey. Love that line delivery. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like Max kind of gives him like a weird like yeah. look. Um, no, I think he's good in this. I think he does a lot with like a character that's kind of like the most flimsily written, which is interesting because he's the one that's supposed to have sort of like the tumultuous backstory of yeah. being like poor, having to work on a fishing boat. All his friends are really rich and he's kind of like an outsider amongst even his closest friends because of that, um, which they set up briefly, but don't really like do anything yeah. with. There's that detail that, like, his dad was maybe a fisherman. Yeah. And it's really... Because Barry makes fun of him for being a fisherman when they, like, reunite. And he's like, oh, just like your dad. And Yeah. And then, every... and then like, that, yeah, that's, like, a bad thing that he is now also a fisherman. Yeah, but... Yeah. Super fleshed out. But, um, no, I think Freddie Prince Jr., like, in the 90s, early 2000s, was, like, prime, 
for like this type of character. He was really good at it. Um, you know, I don't think he does as much acting these days, so I don't know if he's still really good at it. But um, yeah, I'm he's, sure he's he wanted to off a bit, huh? Yeah, I think he. I again, I think they're living off that Buffy money. Yeah. Um, and I think he doesn't really do a ton. He's been in like a couple of like um, like Hallmark movies and that sort of thing, and he's had some like voice acting roles and like video game stuff, and then like just like sort of showing up randomly in things, but he hasn't really like really start in something since like I don't know like Scooby Doo or she's all that or Yeah. So I mean what you know, whatever. Like if he's happy, like Yeah, no, I mean it's fine. I'm just like thinking of like you know, he was you know, when he was doing stuff, he was good. Um yeah. he was in you know, he's a he's <laughs> he was even good as um was his character's name Shelby in Friends? Oh, um it was something yeah. like that. Sandy was his Sandy, name. that was it. Was he was the uh, the nanny? The nanny that Ross was weird about. Freaks out about. Yeah. Yeah. He's so good. Freddie Prince Jr. is so good in that episode. He is. Um. Yeah, and he, I mean, yeah, like you said, he's just good. And of course, um, this is where he met his yeah. future wife, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah. Still married to this day. Have two children. Um, still married to this day, famously, despite the Howard Stern. I don't know if you ever saw that. Oh, yeah. Freddie Prince Jr. went on Howard Stern, like, the year after they were married or right around the time they were getting married. And Howard Stern was trying to tell him, like, oh, you're going to be divorced in, like, a year. Like, you're going to hate it. Like, you're rushing into this. Because they met, obviously, back here in 1997. And they kept in touch. They didn't start, like, openly dating, I think, until... 2001 and then were married in 2002 so like you know they knew each other for years but yeah. you know Howard Stern was just getting on him about getting married and I think part of it was because of how young they were and when they reached their like um I want to say like 12 year anniversary or something Freddie Prince Jr. like had originally in this interview made a bet with Howard Stern like okay in like 12 years or so I'm going to tell you that you're wrong yeah. um and they like made a they like sent him a picture and they were like, yeah, 12 year anniversary. You still love each other. <laughs> well going strong. Yeah. They are, um, they're pretty cute. So they're really cute. And I mean, like Howard, you know, Howard Stern's point basically is that, you know, it's rare for yeah. celebrity couples to stay together and they have, and props to them. I hope they go the distance. Yeah, they and you know they seem to be down to earth. I mean, they're very private about their kids. They don't really they don't post pictures of them um, or anything like that. So yeah, yeah, and it all started right here. I know. I was thinking about it. Yeah. Like, kids like watch this movie, and then I was like trying to picture their kids like watching like Scooby Doo and Buffy and being like, "This is the stupidest fucking shit I've ever seen," and like. Do they understand the chokehold that their mother had on right. 90s pop culture? Right. They just don't get. And then uh, well, and then after, the, like, both of their parents were a known couple. Just yeah. that, like, what that did for the tabloids, you know? Yeah, everyone was all over the two of them. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah. So then, 
Um, in the rest of our main cast, outside of the principal four, we also, we mentioned we have Johnny Galecki as Max Nurick, who... Um, uh, kind of a creepy little stalker. Yeah, he's kind of creepy. It's it's established that he is interested in Julie and has maybe been attempting to pursue her for a while, but she's maybe friendly towards Max, but romantically is only interested in Ray. He's used as a red herring until he's gutted. Miss um, Mel mentioned that Galecki is playing a bit against type here, and yeah. I think that's where I would leave it. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, he plays a kind of creepy character. Yeah. But I always found um, whatever his Big Bang character is, Leonard. Creepy in a different way. <laughs> creepy anyway, so. Yeah. yeah, he's like playing if Leonard was like like a uh, radicalized incel. That's yeah. what his character is. But I feel like that's the vibes we get from from Max a little bit. It's not, uh, yeah, and like, the, you know, they make him the early victim because like, we're not particularly attached to Max as a character. So it's yeah. like, sure. um, it doesn't make sense necessarily why the fisherman kills him, but. Like, I guess it's just because like he showed up, like he was there he that saying, night. So he yeah. was just like tying up loose ends or something. Yeah. Like you'd make that argument. I guess that's how we tie that in um which is fine yeah uh then we have someone we haven't talked about too much uh bridget wilson as elsa shiver elsa who's so unnecessarily mean (laughs) the whole movie um she is mean she's definitely the bitchy one um something interesting i came across apparently in the original script elsa was supposed to be ugly and <laughs> and resent Helen for that, but Gillespie thought that was not particularly interesting as an yeah, angle. Like, that doesn't even character. make sense. <laughs> and so he wanted her to also be like beautiful. I feel like they try and make Elsa like nerdy, like she yeah, wears glasses and she wears her hair up. She like cares about the department store. She like she runs for the department store. She makes fun of her sister because her sister, like, cares about her hair. And I guess it's supposed to, like, be like, oh, Helen. You know, minor slut shaming. It's fine. Helen is so vain because she cares about her hair. And, like, then, you know, when the fisherman later cuts her hair at night. But I don't, to me, that doesn't, like, I'm like, she cares about her hair. Like, she's allowed. I think it also doesn't help that, again, like, SMJ's performance is so... Um, multifaceted and nuanced and complex that it just makes Elsa be like, why are you so, like, why are you mean to this girl? Like, she's... Why are you so mean? You're just like, leave her alone. Um, What I do like is that there's a genuine family resemblance between Bridget Wilson and Sarah Michelle Gellar. Like, not all casting departments go that far casting siblings, and I believe that they would be siblings. Yeah. It's funny because the first time like watching this I think I thought that was like her like like gold digger stepmom when she was was, like I didn't realize it was her sister it was like sort of like her like oh yeah like her young you know mean stepmom who married her dad for that department store money and then I was like oh no they're sisters her dad who we see briefly and is like who's like drunk and passed out or whatever passed out and doesn't seem to 
be too invested in his daughter and it's yeah. also either of them tragedy. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so yeah so that's that's elsa uh then we have Anne hish as melissa missy egan um our she's not like a harbinger of doom but she is she kind of fill, fills that role a little bit. Um, yeah. Also, not even a little bit of a red herring, but just like vibes, weird vibes from her. It's like kind of, you know, she comes across as like a little bit Texas chainsaw y or like the hills have eyes, kind of like a character like that. Yeah. And I and I think a big part of that is the really strange accent Haitian's doing. Yeah. <laughs> is that like a North Carolina? Like, is that an accent they have? I don't think so. I really noticed it on this rewatch. I was like, what is she trying to do here? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Uh, I, <laughs> she, yeah, it's fine. It just makes her, you it's know, like, creepier. Um, um, yeah, it's just sort of. It is funny, though. Okay. Um, yeah, and and Hayesh, famous. Famous, well, famous not lesbian. I guess she said recently she's not a lesbian, even though. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, and, and Missy, Missy tragic in a different way than Helen. Um, but. Yeah. Yeah, but, she kind of almost has like an unresolved um, situation because like. Yeah, like, does she ever find out the truth about what happened to her brother? Presumably, but the, she, doesn't get, she doesn't get closure within the confines of the film. Yeah. Um, and then, finally, um, we have Muse Watson as Ben Willis, otherwise known as the Fisherman. Yeah, I mean... You know, he's only allowed to sort of be his full self in the last sequence. And it's very, like, you know, mask off. It was me the whole time kind of deal. Um, so, so something I was wondering about. You know, I know what you did last summer. It's coming in this right off of this wave that is kicked off of screen with, like, whodunit slashers, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a mystery element. I don't know that the killer reveal and I know what you did last summer is really fair. Yeah. Like, I don't know that because we're working. There's mystery. a lot of information that we don't have. Yeah. Yeah. And like, unless you're like pausing when they're looking at the newspaper clippings, like, are you really gonna know that Susie Willis had a dad? who was yeah. devastated by her death. Right. So, I mean, like, it's... It's it also, like, emotionally me. doesn't really pay off either. You know? Yeah. Like, yes, like, okay, like, the guy that they hit and ran is coming back to get them because, you know, he's pissed that they tried to kill him. Um, I get that, but I think the kind of, like consequences there like the emotional impact of those consequences get undone by the fact that like oh this dude is also a murderer mm-hmm. you know like it would be more interesting if it was like a little more tragic i don't know like you know well, it was just a normie 
Yeah, if the killer was David Egan. Yeah. Like, someone who hadn't committed murder, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's sort of, like, basically to, like, wipe the slate clean for the main characters, right? Like, they hit someone who had just killed a young man. So, you know, it's like, oh, well, what they did wasn't that bad. And it's like, wasn't it, though? <laughs> yeah. No, I think it definitely is meant to sort of absolve... Um specifically the two who survive at the end to be like oh like no it's fine like he fine. he was a murderer anyway so there's they did nothing wrong yeah yeah and it's like well the, the morality there is a little murky um yeah yeah and then just uh real quick to give them some recognition um the rest of the cast consists of Stuart greer as the officer uh, J. Don Ferguson as the MC for the pageant. Deborah Hobart as Mrs. James, Julie's mom. Mary McMillan as Mrs. Cox, uh, Barry's mother. Uh, Rasul Jahan as Deb, Julie's um, friend or roommate. Oh, yeah, her roommate. Yeah, I think they're roommates, right? He's like, come on, it's summer yeah, break. It's summer break. It's, Deb, it's also Deb at the end. We only see her shadow in the shower. Yeah. Yeah, who's, like, dropping off the note or whatever. Who drops off the note, yeah. yeah. Um, Dan Albright as the sheriff. Linda Clark as the pageant official. John Bennis as the old man. And then Shea Boom and Jennifer Bland as uh, the two contestants who get focused in the uh, Miss Croker pageant. Yes. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. Being the fun stuff, what are some other fun facts regarding this film? Sure. So, you know, as we said, Gillespie kind of falls off the face of the earth after this movie. Um, but Jennifer Love Hewitt said he was her favorite director to work with in her entire career. Oh, wow. So, bummer that he doesn't do stuff anymore. He's still alive, right? I, I think he so. Well, and like I said, I feel like this movie is well-directed. Like, Yes, he is still alive. There's some cool shots. Like, I love that opening sequence. Um, yeah. Like I was saying, I love the beach scene and the way that's all framed, which, like, that was all apparently modeled off of, like, a, a painting that mm-hmm. Gillespie really liked. Um, so it's like, he had talent. Like, yeah. where, where'd he go? <laughs> <laughs> um, interestingly, Jennifer Love Hewitt was very close friends with Johnny Galecki. Like, I think they kind of, like, knew each other since childhood. And um, she apparently got freaked when she opened the trunk and there was, like, the body cast of him being eaten by crabs. And they actually had to stop production because she was, like, having a panic attack. And they got Galecki on the phone to, like, calm her down. Because I don't think she... I don't think they told her what was going to be in there. So it freaked her out. Um... Uh, obviously, as we know, Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar met on this film and um, are married with children now and continue, you know, they've been married for like 20 years at this point. Um, yeah. Ironically, their characters only have like four lines of direct dialogue with each other. Um, yeah, they do. They like never interact. It's yeah, very funny, which is so funny, like watching it being like, no, the pairings of these couples are wrong. The other way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the setting of Dawson's Beach is an obvious reference to Dawson's Creek, which Williamson created famously. Um, the docks that they used to film this. And is why, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and it's why he couldn't come back for the sequel to this movie. Yeah. Because he's busy with Dawson's Creek. 
yeah. and why he uh, wrote a, in his words, subpar screenplay for Scream 3 because the Weinsteins <laughs> were demanding he produce something and he's like, I'm busy with Dawson's Creek and they were like, give us something or we'll fire you. And he was like, well, here. Yeah. <laughs> um, it does have one of the greatest lines. The line reads, perhaps, in <laughs> history. <laughs> um, but the docks used in the film also feature in Dawson's Creek in the pilot, I think. They were filmed at the same oh. docks, um, even though Dawson's Creek takes place in Massachusetts. Um, so the film, one of the film's most iconic scenes where Julie shouts and is like, what are you waiting for? <laughs> was directed by a child. What? Who won a contest to come on set and like direct one shot. And like, he was like, I want you to say this and do this. And Jennifer Love Hewitt was like, "I this sounds so fucking stupid, but did it because she had to. And after seeing the finished product, she like, was impressed with the quality of the sequence and its effectiveness on the rest of the film. No idea where this kid is now. She does not know. <laughs> That's incredible. She said, she's like, I don't know what happened to him, but. <laughs> I hope he's out there somewhere. Yeah, so somewhere is this kid who came up with, like, it wasn't in the script. Like he was just like, say this and do it this way. Um, and it seemed to her stupid at the time, but turned out to be like wow. the shot of the film. And it has, and it has remained like the shot of the film to this day. Yeah. <laughs> um, while filming, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Phillippe took a crew rental car for like a drive and ended up getting it stuck in a sand dune where it had to get like towed out. And they were so afraid that they were going to get fired that they like kept it a secret. Sure. Yeah, for like a, a long time. Yeah. Um, they would also, the group, the main group would have like impromptu gatherings on the beach, but Jennifer Love Hewitt and Geller were both underage, so Freddie Prince Jr. would buy them alcohol <laughs> so they could like hang out on, on the beach and turn up. Um, Jennifer Love Hewitt was also like legitimately unsettled while filming this movie and recalled having like serious like insomnia. While filming it, because she found it, like, you know, she just got into it so much and was so creeped out. Um, the... I mean, she lo- and, like... Yeah, she looks she, haggard. She looks haggard. Um, yeah. Which is another, another fun thing. Apparently the makeup department was told, um, make them look stressed, but also make sure they're still hot. Yeah. <laughs> hot stress. Like a Victorian writer. Yeah. Um... There was originally a line referencing the physical similarities between the killer and the mascot for Gorton's Seafood, um, which you may know from the frozen food section of your local grocery store. Um, But it was cut because they felt like acknowledging that um, would make the killer seem less scary. (laughs) So they took it out. Um, It was originally in the parade sequence uh, where somebody says, like, yeah, I'm supposed to be looking for the fish sticks guy. and uh, they decided to remove it. That's that's pretty fun. Um, but yeah, so the movie comes out in October of 1997. And tell us a little bit about how it was received. Yeah, so um, so Columbia Pictures distributes the film. Um, they had a huge marketing campaign in the summer of 97 to um, 
you know, drum up interest. I have no recollection of that. Too too young, but you know, sometimes snippets come through, but I don't remember. Yeah. Um, uh, and the big push around that marketing was that the movie was from the creator of Scream. That's you know, sort of what they were building a lot of the promotion around. Now, when Miramax, Scream's uh, parent studio and the owner of the rights to Scream, saw that, they were like, nah. And they sued Columbia, saying, you know, their claim was that um, Columbia was like basically falsely advertising because Wes Craven was the director of Scream, not Kevin Williamson, the writer of the two. Right. So, potential semantics on what creator means, but like in the world of filmmaking, yeah, the director is usually viewed as the creator. Yeah, I mean, it sucks because it is like ultimately Kevin Williamson's creation, but. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting and it's strange and it's weird. I mean, like the chase scene, for example, like in the script, it just says, Helen runs to the store, is killed. Yeah. That's Williamson's writing. Right. That's what happens. Gillespie turned it into this, like, incredible sequence. So, like, it's a team effort. Yeah. You know, really. But anyway, uh, Miramax sues. The week after the film comes out, they get awarded an injunction by the court. Columbia is forced to remove the claim from the creator of Scream from all of the advertising. Uh, Williamson himself had actually asked to remove it once he saw the poster. Um, So he himself didn't feel like that was appropriate, which is an interesting detail. Mm -hmm. But regardless, um, there was a lot of interest. And so when the film opens, it ends up being number one at the box office for three weeks until it is dethroned by Starship Troopers. (laughs) Um, It ends up grossing a worldwide total of $126 million dollars against its $17 million budget, making for a $109 million profit. So definitely a success. Yeah. Um, reviews are more mixed, though. Uh, the positive side of, uh, of the reviews uh, call the film smart. They say that it's sharp. The um, young cast is praised as being really solid. The characters as being believable. Um, individuals who are reacting realistically to what might be unrealistic circumstances. But then there are some negative reviews that call the film to by the numbers. Uh, They label it a subpar scream copycat. And they say that it's two eighties actually, that it feels like it's a decade too late. I mean, it's, you know, who knows? I wasn't around in the eighties. Um, so my understanding of the 80s is not, uh, you know, of the time. But is that because it was a slasher? Like, I, my, my guess is that it's because Scream the year before takes this meta approach, right? Mm. It's huge. Everyone's into that. This comes along the next year and it plays the horror straight and not as like self-referential and meta 
And so that's my guess as to why mm-hmm. people were like, well, you're like a traditional slasher, essentially, like an 80s slasher. Yeah. And we're expecting, we want this new kind of version of the slasher that Scream is modeling. Um, and so that's my guess. I feel like if this movie came out first, like if it came out before Scream, it would have had better reviews, but it would have done worse at the box office. Yeah. That makes sense. So. Um, but as of now, I know what you did last summer currently has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 45%, a Metacritic score of 52, an IMDb rating of 5.8 out of 10, and a letterbox rating of 2.9 out of 5. I feel like people are being overly critical with this movie. I think a little. I think a little. My my letterbox rating, I gave it a 3.5. I I think this is I think that's what I gave it to. I think this is solid. Um and uh as mentioned earlier, Lois Duncan, author of the original novel, is not a fan of the adaptation. Um I think for a number of reasons. So um Let's talk a bit about um, some ways we can interpret the film. Um, we talked a little bit about the urban legend uh, background earlier. Do we have anything else to add, actually? Yeah, I mean, the movie sort of, you know, in thinking of the urban legend like element, like it sort of plays like a like a loss of innocence. Okay. Um, which Jim Gillespie was actually kind of going for while filming sort of like less to him, like a traditional horror movie and more of like a morality tale. Yeah. Um, But basically, you know, it takes place on the eve of these like high schoolers heading to college features, like a scene of like two of them losing their virginity seemingly early in in the film um, before, you know, right after that committing a hit and run and like killing somebody or thinking that they killed somebody. Um, you know, and the com- consequences come back to them in, like, a very mortal, you know, concrete way. Um, and, you know, ironically, but perhaps even on purpose, the two who we do see having sex are the ones who survived. Mm. Um, which makes the story feel more like a pair of people, like, going through, like, their coming of age and reaching the other side, as opposed to, like, you know, like, the punishment that slashers normally are. Right. When it comes to like scenes of like debauchery followed by like carnage. That's an interesting interpretation. Like yeah. 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 And and like we said, there's not a ton of carnage in this movie. You know? No, yeah, there's not a lot of um Yeah, I mean there's purposely not a lot of blood. There's not a lot of like there's on screen violence, but it's not yeah. uh, gory. Mm. And yeah. Yeah, it goes, it, it finds its frights in other corners, um, which gives us a good opening to talk about one good scare. Uh, and what do you think is the most frightening moment of the film for you? I feel like, weirdly, the thing that sticks in my mind, besides, like, you know, Helen's chase sequence and that sort of thing, is the crabs eating Max's body. Like, that's kind of, like, gross and creepy and, like, 
just like this, you know, like the idea of like anything like sort of subsisting on a recently deceased human body of somebody that like I recognize and know is kind of creepy. Um, so, you know, I think that one and also can understand why Jennifer Love Hewitt like freaked out about it. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just, just visually very icky. Um, yeah. yeah, I feel like obviously Helen's chase sequence, also the end sequence, like on the boat, like where Julie is sort of like being pursued, mm-hmm. you know, with ice chests and all of that is is tense. And then no matter how many times I see this movie, every time when they go to see Missy and they're getting ready to leave mm-hmm. and Anne Hash like slams on top of the car, yeah. Like, hey. yeah that's always so weird it always gets me it, like, it's wow. classic, like, She's like you forgot your cigarette like something stupid yeah i think it's the cigarettes um and it's such a like typical horror movie like scare but it's it gets me every time i'm like i always forget that that bitch comes back <laughs> yeah um so yeah and then um how about the view from the closet, uh, which, you know, Chatters is where we take, you know, a little moment to say, is there any way we can think about this film from an LGBTQ plus lens? The only thing I could think is that Julie, despite the fact that she's like with Ray or whatever, gives me major like closeted lesbian vibes. I feel like Julie definitely is going to experiment at Boston College. Yeah. And that's, I was like, oh my God, she's supposed to be at Boston College, like famous place for closeted gay women. Like, I think Deb might be more than a friend. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's like the only, because there's really not, um, I mean, I don't know if you, if you saw anything, but I felt like there wasn't a ton more to go off of. I don't think there's a ton more. I mean, we've talked about this when we've done our episodes on Scream and Scream 2. Like, Kevin Williamson is an openly gay man. Mm-hmm. I think just inherently having the movies being written by him, there's a bit more of a semblance. Like the female characters are not treated the same way a lot of other like female characters and slashers are. Um, and if they are sort of made to be eye candy, like so are the male characters. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, they're both walking around in their tank tops and shit, like, you know, but that's really all I had. Yeah, I mean, it's weird, it's sort of like an outlier, I feel like, in some of his screenplays, and, like, not being able to pick up an obvious sort of subtext. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I don't know, you watched the, the, the new version, did you feel that that was any more updated in yeah, it is. It is updated. Um, there are there are some there are some little babies in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and speaking of uh, the update and um, and whatnot, uh, let's move now to legacy. Legacy. What is a legacy? Um, so obviously, as we've uh, been alluding to a little bit, I know what you did last summer was a big part of late 90s, early 2000s horror culture. Um, Sort of paired up with Scream and Scream 2, it helps reignite the slasher as uh, the big horror draw, and really just horror in general at this this time. 
It does, like we said, get labeled as an imitation, often a cheap one. But now, like, the pendulum has swung back, I think, in a lot of ways. And this film is regarded as um, sort of being influential and well-made in its own right, like, separate from its relation to Scream, which I think it deserves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and we also talked about, like, where Scream was very much all about the self-conscious references, I know what you did last summer is a bit more direct. It's paying homage to a lot of slashers from the 70s and 80s. The horror is straight. And essentially what people are kind of realizing now is that it gave audiences the chance to revisit the type of classic slashers that Scream reminded them that they loved. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why when you pair those two movies together, like the slasher craze really took off. And I don't think that I know what you did last summer is a ripoff in the way that like some other slashers in the era from the time were clearly trying to go off of scream success, like, you know, Valentine or even urban legend, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. And then, so, well, how, how did the film um, live on in terms of home media? So it was released on VHS and DVD by uh, Columbia TriStar Home Video on June 16th, 1998. I didn't realize we had DVDs by then. I think it was like, those were the, the first ones. Yeah. This what this was the first DVD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the DVD included the theatrical trailer and a filmmaker's commentary, which I have not watched. I don't know if you have. I have not. That'd um, be interesting. Yeah. Um, Sony released the film on Blu-ray July 22nd, 2008, which included additional special features and Jim Gillespie's short film Joyride. Um, Mill Creek Entertainment released a budget Blu-ray with no special features on um, September 30th, 2014, and Sony released the Ultra HD Blu-ray for the film's 25th anniversary on September 27th, 2022. Um, Beyond these official releases, it has been spoofed... um, been parodied many times, um, most notably Scary Movie 2000, which I honestly think Scary Movie was maybe, like, I saw Scary Movie before I saw this. Like, I'm pretty sure I did, because I remember even, like, thinking Ghostface was like, oh, it's that guy from Scary Movie. (laughs) I know, it, it is wild when people who, like, maybe aren't quite as into horror will be like, wait, is that quote from scary movie or scream yeah um and it didn't help that scream is like also a a parody movie in its own right so but um scary movie the first one which came out in 2000 was kind of the first one to spoof this then shriek if you know what i did last friday the 13th which also came out in 2000 um obviously simpsons treehouse of horror x segment i know what you did what you diddly, diddly Italy did. Um, uh, the film does have two sequels, which I have not seen, and I honestly considered watching, even though I heard the third one's absolute trash um, after watching this. I've never seen the third one. Most people agree the second one sucks, but I kind of like it. Yeah, so I might watch them. We'll see if I get bored. They um, go to the Bahamas. Okay. And... <laughs> Brandy's there. She's like the new best friend for Jennifer Love Hewitt. Sure. 
and like it's she's like, like um Cindy's new roommate when she gets like yeah. a new best friend and then that one dies and and that she gets like a chase sequence that's like a mirror to Helen's in this movie. And I it's it's not like objectively good, but I like it. <laughs> um that came out in nineteen ninety eight, so pretty quick turnaround and was called yes. I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. Um and it was followed all the way in two thousand six by uh the third film I'll Always Know What You Did Last Summer, which I honestly think is a great title. <laughs> <laughs> For, for a, uh, I think their their sequel and their franchise titles are are good. These are these are solid. Um, Love Hewitt, Prince, and uh, Watson all reply reprise their roles for the first sequel, but the uh, third film bears little relation to the first two beyond the premise and the villain and no returning characters. Um, there were two Bollywood remakes. Um. <laughs> which I'm not going to pronounce these right, so I apologize in advance. Um, I don't know if you know how to say them. I don't know for sure. I think that first one is Koktohai. Okay. And then the other remake was is Dund or Hund, maybe. Uh, known in English as which is entirely different from Carpenter, maybe. Yeah. Um, those came out in 2003. Um, Sony announced in 2014 that Mike Flanagan and Jeff Howard um, were writing a script for a remake set for release in 2016. Obviously, that did not happen. Um, fingers crossed, maybe one day. Who knows? I feel like that ship has sailed for Mike Flanagan. He's kind of he's allowed to do his own IP now, so yeah. um, kind of he's is. But um, yeah. But uh, Amazon Prime did produce a television series adaptation of the novel, which was released in October of 2021, which you watched. I did watch. Um, yeah, and it is more closely, I guess, to the novel, although it's still very much doing its own thing from what I understand. There's a weird twin element in it. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, it's updated and they're they're all like Gen Z or, you mm-hmm. know, little characters. Um, and it was fine. It's weird. Yeah. It's, it's weird. But I mean, the basic structure is there. There are some teens. They're leaving a party. It's not 4th of July. I think it's graduation. And there is a hit and run that they cover up. And then a year later, someone is is stalking them because mm-hmm. of what they know. But with some, some, real, some other really crazy stuff going on. <laughs> it was entertaining. It was entertaining. Yeah. So. Um. Interestingly, in February 2023, um, a sequel kind of in the vein of Scream 20, the one that came out in 2022. Um, five Cream? Five Cream. <laughs> As we all know, Five Cream, it's government name, uh, was announced um, because that seems to be the trend right now between Scream and Halloween and um, the horrible Texas Chainsaw movie. Mm. Um, Hellraiser. Yeah, Hellraiser even. So, um, Love Hewitt and Prince will be reprising their roles, um, which is interesting. Um, directed by Jennifer Caden Robinson, who directed Do Revenge, which I still have to watch, and Someone Great. Um, and then Leah McKendrick writing. Um, 
in March, it, you know, it was kind of like the waters were muddied a little bit. Prince said he hadn't actually received like an offer. Um, and that like, I guess the announcement was to gauge his interests. <laughs> so I don't Which know if we're, <laughs> yeah, if we're like assuming like, okay, like that means he will be back. Um, and they just haven't contacted him or, or whatever, but, um, supposedly, um, they're both coming back for it. How do you feel about a potential legacy sequel? Um, I mean, it's so interesting because amongst all those things, I mean, I guess you could say any of them are like very, um, like, you know, closed book, like contained story. Um, you know, I think it, you know, this one in particular though feels tough to kind of, um, you know, scale more out of just because it's like you know okay with scream you had like you know sydney was kind of like already well known in town and you had like the previous murder so there's always going to be like somebody who becomes interested in this and interested in the situation for this it's like so very like um you know personal and like you know seemingly you know with the way it ends it seems like a random act of violence as far as everyone else is concerned um so, like, I have a hard time imagining, like, a way in which they could write a, you know, hashing this back up with these two, you know, reprising. Um, right. Making a ton of sense. But, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll watch it. Oh, yeah. I would definitely watch it. I, I feel like I had a similar thought. I was like, yeah, but how, how would you even, like, bring the same two characters back and and tie it in but i yeah i would check it out so if they do it i'll be there yeah well i think we are just about ready to um leave the beach or you know um but we will uh close out with one last question uh which is my go around this time and i absolutely need to know if you were in the croaker queen pageant what would your talent be huh interesting (laughs) (laughs) um I mean, I was always pretty good at the the old uh, cherry stem trick. Hey, yeah. Uh, like a thing when I was a kid. I was very. And my parents like told me about it. I think to like keep me occupied at dinner and like shut me up when I would order Shirley Temple's. Um, <laughs> but I was always pretty good at that. Not that fun to watch on stage in terms of like beauty pageant talents. Um, You'd have to like do it to like some crazy song and yeah or time it i don't know oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's probably the closest thing i have to a sort of <laughs> talent for a for a performance <laughs> yeah what about you? I, I decided that um because i also don't really have like a pageanty kind of talent i decided that i would um just get like an empty bottle and do like and do like like blow a blow a song on it or something. There we go. I could play recorder like back yeah, in the like day. hot sauce buns or whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, like, that's yeah. I don't even really play like a real instrument anymore. <laughs> yeah, I I did the trumpet for a year. Yeah, there was trumpet, uh, piano, um, sousaphone. I graduated to that big honking thing at one point, so. Yeah, you can bust that out. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, it's probably a good thing that um, we didn't compete against Helen because we would have crushed her. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, yeah, I think that closes the book on I Know What You Did Last Summer. Um, if you have any thoughts about this, uh, kind of, kind of underrated, maybe even a little underappreciated, um, slasher gem from the nineties, since it was in the shadow of scream, we'd love to hear them. Uh, how can they let us know what those thoughts are, Miss Mel? Sure. They can email us at splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at splatterchatter666 minus all the vowels. Search for us, though, and we'll pop right up. You can send us a Tumblr at... A Tumblr? You can send us an ask on Tumblr at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can leave a comment on splatterchatterpodcast.com. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And we would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So this is going to wrap up episode 111th, 101st. 111th, 1100th. Episode 111. Uh, We will be back in your ears later this month, in fact, for another installment of Booze and Booze. Do you be on the lookout now? Do we want that to be a surprise or do we want to let folks know? Um, we'll let it be a surprise, but it is fitting with the season and is a spiritual sequel to last year's, um, yes, July episode. Very good. I like that. That's a good tease. Uh, and then we will be back in August for episode 112. We've thrown some ideas around. I don't know if we want to commit on Mike, but I think it will also be seasonally appropriate potentially with another seasonally appropriate booze and booze in August. So we've got a lot coming here with gatherers. In the meantime, uh, have a happy fourth for our American chatterers. Um, Have fun. Keep it safe. uh, But also keep up the creep. And for now, we will say au revoir. Adios. Bye.